All right. Good morning. morning. It's a joy to um, share the word and reflect on this passage that I've been studying for quite some time now. I'm sure you're eager to hear from Michael. Uh, Me too. (laughs) We uh, decided to complete this series before we get on with the next uh, sermon. So 1 Timothy chapter 3 Verse 11, Um, actually, we're going to kind of recap and go back to verse 8, and then we're going to read through verse 13. Before we get there, I thought about a really good quote from Winston Churchill, probably familiar with him. He once said, there is no doubt that it is around the family and the home that all the greatest virtues, the most dominating virtues of human, are created, is strengthened, and maintained. End of quote. Today we're going to be talking about the deacon's family. What should it look like? And if I could add to this joke, to this quote from Churchill, I could add that it is around the family that both the, as he says, dominating virtues of a human and as well as the dominating vices of a human are also more clearly observed, exemplified, and replicated. So today we return to this, uh, our study in the qualifications for a church deacon, and we will see today that a deacon's family plays an essential role not only on his qualification, but also on the execution of his tasks. So with no more delays, let's turn to 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 8. Deacons, likewise, must be men of dignity, not double-tongued, or addicted to much wine, or fond of sordid gain, but holding to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. These men must also first be tested, then let them serve as deacons if they are beyond reproach. Women must be likewise dignified, not malicious gossips, but temperate, faithful in all things. Deacons must be husbands of only one wife and good managers of their children and their own households. For those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a high standing and great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we come before you with all humility because we realize your great standards for your people, not only for those in the leadership, but for your whole church. You have called a people to yourself to make them holy, and you expect them to be holy, Lord. And I pray that as we look at these character qualities, at this way of of dealing with the family in a a God-honoring way in the lives of deacons, may we be challenged as well to be men that honor your word on how we, in the different relationships in our family, the husbands with wives, wives with their husbands, and children with the parents, and parents with their children. You have set your people to be a light into this world. Lord, and the church is a, a microcosm of, of this relationship. And the families of those in leadership are also a representation of what your church should be. I pray that you would help us to focus and to learn what you have to instruct us this morning. In the precious name of your Holy Son, amen. All right, so I divided simply there, if you have uh, picked up the outline, um, the deacon's household, verses 11 through 12, and then the deacon's reward, verse 13, and then we're going to conclude our series here with the question, how about everybody else in the church? What does that look like for serving God? All right, so a deacon's household. And I I thought, 
you know, there's a lot of confusion in this in this text. Um, different views from people that we we trust. You know, uh, people that love the word. They're serious about interpreting scripture. So it is not an easy passage to be so um, clear cut about these things. Um, so at the same time, I want to give uh, grace and uh, really to honor those that have a different view from us when it comes to deaconess. How do you translate this word here? So before we get into the discussion to the deacon's family, I think it's important for us to establish the identity of the woman in verse 11, where he says the woman, uh, which is the word gonikis from the Greek, mentioned here in verse 11. Is Paul speaking of female deacons? Is Paul speaking of female assistants to the deacons? Or is, is he talking about the deacons' wives, as the ESV translates it? So I'm saying that to have humility and grace, because I am certain that there are many, many churches out there that doesn't hold to the same view that we have but they have been serving the Lord faithfully. We just happen to have a different understanding of what this passage means, all right? And all that to say, too, that we have many, many women in our church that doesn't hold the title of a deaconess, but they do so much for uh, the people of God here. So um, I I put here three reasons why we hold, uh, Grace Community Fellowship holds to that this passage refers to deacons' wives and not to deaconesses. And the first reason why we don't believe that it's referring to deaconesses because it is grammatically and contextually inconsistent. So for some of you that have been attending first hour on how to study scripture and how to interpret it, you will see some of these principles that we talked about here. I argue that Paul utilized the words diakonoi and the word for woman there, the gunaikis, Deliberately and precisely, he had a purpose in mind when he used these words. He used the word for deacons, the diaconoi, for male deacons from verses 8 through 10, and that's what we covered a couple of weeks ago. And then in verse 12, he again employed the word for deacons. Deacons must be husbands of one wife. Between these two clear designations, diaconi, Paul intentionally employed the word gunaikis for women to identify these persons as the wives of the deacons. Wives is an acceptable translation of gunaikis, and it states immediately for the reader that the persons in verse 11 are the wives of deacons. Most English Bibles actually translate that word as wives. Now, if verse 11 introduces a third office, as some believe, as the office of deaconess, one would expect more details, especially since women were so involved in the heresies that were going on in the Ephesian church. For example, in all three lists, Paul raises the issue of marital fidelity. Uh, chapter 3, verse 2, what does he say to the elders, to the overseers? That they must be the husband of one wife. Then on verse uh, 12, the deacons should be the husband of one wife. Then later in Titus, the same thing. Elders, the husband of one wife. Well, if there would be a, a deaconess office, wouldn't he use the same qualifications, uh, a wife of one man? to be applied to that, um, to that category. Even in the case of widows, uh, Paul used that terminology. Turn to chapter 5, verse 9. You will see here. <clears throat> um, Paul we're gonna, is going to talk about the widows and qualifying them in different um, ways so that the church might help and service them. And in verse 9, he says, a widow is to be put on the list only if she is not less than 60 years old, having been, and then there's the expression there, the wife of one man. So Paul was familiar with this expression, and it doesn't mean that the person would cover this already when we're studying overseers. It doesn't mean that he's referring to a person that never 
um, got remarried or were divorced uh, is, is speaking of marital fidelity. It's marital fidelity. And it's clear to us, particularly on this verse here, because widows, um, they're not married to anyone. Their spouse is gone. And so it, it helps us to understand that this is not speaking of um, necessarily marital status, but one's faithfulness to those who are married. We established already that single um, males could be an overseer and they could be a deacon. It is really speaking of purity of heart. Now, the problem with deaconesses here is also dealt with elsewhere in the pastoral epistles. In light of Paul's readiness to repeat himself on this point, he keeps saying the husband of one wife, the husband of one wife, and the omission of this qualification here is noteworthy. The requirements, if for, say, a female deacon, are considerably lighter than those for a male deacon. And that seems unlikely for Paul to have this double standard. Some may argue that if the word for women were wives, we should expect also some talking about the wife of an overseer. Why is that that doesn't talk about the wives of elders? That's a good question. It would be, though, an argument from silence. Just because he didn't speak of the elders' wives doesn't mean that there were no expectations on, the quali- on her qualifications. The issue is easily explained by understanding the distinction of the role of an elder and the role of a deacon. A deacon's wife might, wife might help him in some of his tasks, but an elder's wife, though she might help him with some of his tasks, such as hospitality, ministering to the woman, she doesn't share in her husband's responsibility to be able to teach and refute error, let alone exercising oversight over a man, which are an exclusive requirement of an overseer. Besides that, the elders must manage their households. We learned this uh, from verses 4 through 5. If an elder's wife is creating scandal, her behavior is offensive, or her character is seriously flawed, that elder's household is not above reproach. I appreciate the way that Alexander struck, but this, he says, although the elder's wife is not mentioned in verses 2 through 7, any serious assessment of a prospective elder's qualifications for office will include an evaluation of his wife and children to whom his public reputation is intimately tied. It should be assumed that whatever is required of a deacon's wives needs also to be required of an elder's wife. End the quote. <clears throat> you will remember, um, some of you, that I, ha- I was tested during my ordination process, and the elders got to spend some time talking to Lindsay. Uh, what is your home life like? What is Ronaldo like at home? And, and we're probably going to do the same thing with Michael when, he comes, when it comes the time for his ordination. So... This is a, I hope that explains why Paul is mentioning the deacon's wives and and not the uh, elder's wives. Here's another reason for thinking that the word gunakis should be translated as wives. It is the placement of the term in the middle of Paul's instructions on male deacons. So let us just track back here the whole picture of this this text. In chapter 3, verse 1 through 2, Paul is speaking of male overseers, right? He says, if any man aspires to the office of an overseer, it is a fine work he desires. An overseer, male, then must be above reproach, the husband of one wife. And you go to verse 8. Deacons, males, likewise must be men of dignity. These men clearly, must also first be tested, then let them serve as deacons if they are beyond reproach. Then verse 11, women must likewise be dignified, not malicious gossips, but temperate, faithful in all things. Verse 12, deacons, he comes back to deacons, males, 
must be husbands of only one wife and good managers of their children and their own households. It would seem strange if Paul addressed the deacons from verses 8 to 10, then interjected the qualifications for what assumed to be female deacons or deaconesses in verse 11, and then reverted back immediately as an afterthought to the deacons, to the deacons, to the marital and family qualifications of the male deacons. But if verse 11 refers to deacons' wives and not to women deacons, then verse 12 is not treated as an afterthought or a return to male deacons after speaking of women in verse 11. Instead, according to verse 10, deacons' candidates must be publicly examined by the church and its leaders and proven to be blameless before they serve as elders' assistants. So the rendering of wives, likewise, like our trans, uh, the ESV translates, does flow nicely out of verse 10, indicating that the wives must be dignified just like their husbands like the, their deacon husbands. Based on this interpretation, the deacon's candidate's wife then would be included in the examination of the candidate's public reputation. Another reason why we don't hold to deaconesses, because it is historically inaccurate. Some believe that the right translation for the women, the word woman there in verse 11 should be deaconesses. Nevertheless, there is no historical evidence for such a statement, if there were women deacons in the first churches of Ephesus and Sincre, where Paul is writing here, if, there were, um, if these women were deacons, it is truly remarkable that we do not see a clear record of um, these women deacons or deaconesses and their prescribed duty in, the, in their post-apostolic Christian literature for more than 150 years. So the word in Greek, diakonisa, to refer to female deacons, doesn't appear in church history until 150 years after the letter of 1 Timothy was written. And when search records do appear, they're mostly in the eastern churches. So Jerusalem, Antioch, all that area there of um, the Middle East, they don't appear on the Western churches, like Europe and, and um, the Western side of Asia. Many students of Scripture believe, and this is one of the passages that is key here, is uh, go to Romans 16. They look at this passage here, and they use this as a proof text for female deacons. See, there you go, we found one. It's a Phoebe. Paul is writing, Romans 16, verse 1 through 2. He says, I command to you our sister Phoebe, who is a servant of the church which is at Sancre, that you receive her in the Lord in a manner worthy of the saints, and that you help her in whatever matter she might have need of you. For she herself also has been a helper, the word diakonos there, of many and of myself as well. Remember, the word diaconeo or whatever form of serving appears in the New Testament more than a hundred times. But it is translated in different ways depending on its context. In this context, they translated the word deacon as a helper. So Phoebe being a helper. So Paul is writing from Rome to the church in Sancre. And you would expect that they would have at least something about deaconess if that was the case. And that, that is not the case. Again, there is no evidence of women deacons in Rome for a hundred years after Paul's letters to the Romans. The apostolic father, Hippolytus, who wrote an important manual for the church sometime between the year 215 to the year 220, he wrote this manual about the apostolic tradition. So these are the traditions that we receive from the apostles, and we're passing it on to you. So he listed several offices in the church, and, some, and these are the ones that he listed. He spoke of overseers. He spoke of elders, deacons, subdeacons, confessors, widows, lectors, virgins, healers, 
but not of female deacons. Church history expert comments, the ecclesiology or the doctrine of the church of St. Hippolytus of Rome simply excluded the possibility of deaconesses, as did the ecclesiology or the doctrine of the church by Tertullian all his life as well. So even these church fathers that have written extensively on the doctrine of the church didn't mention deaconesses. So although the office of deaconess is found very early in church history, this tells us nothing necessarily about this verse. And a scholar argues that verse 11 is not sufficiently specific to construct an actual office for deaconesses and that it refers to women in general who are involved in the church and ministry. Moreover, one wonders whether Paul would have encouraged this type of relationship of a man working closely with a woman who was not his wife, especially in light of the Ephesian problem with the women there. So lastly, a third last um, justification here for why we don't have women deacons. Well, because it is doctrinally inconsistent. Um, we recently studied, actually Michael preached from that passage in chapter 2, Let's turn to 1 Timothy, chapter 2. So if the women in verse 11 are deacons equal to their male counterparts, they are then being made the overseer's assistants, as we established last, uh, last message but the idea of women assistants to the elders conflicts with the entire context of the preceding text. So verse 8 in chapter 2, he says, Therefore, I want the man to pray at every place. And then he turns on verse 9 to the women. Likewise, I want the women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly, discreetly. Describes there, but it says, But rather, verse 10, by means of good works, as it is proper for women making a claim of godliness. Then he talks about how they ought to receive instruction, verse 11. But then verse 12 he says, But I do not allow a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. Not to say that women do serve in the church. Right? We, we, we have many here who even uh, teach uh, women's study to other women or they teach children. But that passage makes clear that a woman shouldn't exercise authority or teach over a man. Putting a deaconess in a position to be assistant to the elders is elevating her to the position of authority over other men as well. So 1 Timothy 2, 8 through 15 is part of the overall context in the beginning of chapter uh, 2. And it's connected to and govern his instructions for overseers and deacons. Paul wouldn't contradict himself. Considering Paul's explicit restrictions in 1 Timothy 2, it is doubtful that the women of 1 Timothy 3.11 are women deacons in the sense of being equal partners with the male assistant to the elders. So most commentators and church leaders who are committed to the women deacons or deaconesses hold so what they do to accommodate this view is to say, actually, the diaconate is not really an office. So it's not a position of authority, they're just servants. So then they can accommodate the view that you can have these females. They may call the deacons exemplary servants or leading servants, and they would contend for 1 Timothy 2.12 does not apply to women deacons or deaconesses because they do not conduct the teaching of the church and are not official assistants in exercising authority over men. But as we discussed previously, the diaconate, it is an official position of assistance to the elders. All right. Now, I know that was really technical discussion, so let's get to the meat of it. Why, is, why in the world Paul did write about deacons' wives? Okay? So even if you hold to a different view, clearly Paul is establishing here that there are some qualifications for these women. And what, what is that is all about? 
So four characteristics to describe these women. One, like her husband, she must be dignified. Number two, she cannot be a malicious gossip. Number three, she must be temperate or clear-minded. And lastly, a deacon's wife must be faithful in all things. Let's see first what a dignified means. It's kind of like a repeat because we've read this already on the deacon's qualifications, right? The, same, the exact same word there, dignified. It is the feminine form of the same adjective used for the deacons in verse 8. And explains to us why Paul used the word likewise. Just as a deacon must be dignified, likewise his wife should also be dignified or worthy of respect. In the body of Christ, a leader's moral character and public reputation are critical to his task of leading God's household. The qualification dignified describes a person whose attitudes and conduct win their respect. So a deacon's wife must be respectable, well-thought-of person. And to, to add to that, she must have a good name, which a person earns by being godly in character and lifestyle. Obviously, a godly wife will greatly enhance her husband's reputation as a deacon. She will be one of the most important influences of the, his development of Christ-like character and his work in the church. I appreciate the book of Proverbs because he, they, Solomon describes there so beautifully how a woman that is godly, that walks with the Lord. And Proverbs 2.4 says, An excellent wife is a crown to her husband, but she who shames him is like rottenness in the bones. Proverbs 19.14, House and wealth are inheritance from the father's. But a prudent wife comes from the Lord. Proverbs 31.10, that's the one that everybody knows. An excellent wife, who can find? Verse 12, for her worth is far above jewels, and she does him good and not evil all the days of her life. That is a dignified, worthy of reputation, worthy of respect wife. That is the character of a deacon's wife. The second characteristic is she is not a gossip. She is not a malicious, um, what, what he translates here, she shouldn't be a malicious gossip. This is an interesting word in the Greek because um, I don't want to put too much emphasis on it. But it's the word diabolos. That sounds like what? The devil. And it is the word to describe the devil as a slanderer. The, the, the devil is a slanderer. He is known, as Jesus described him, described him in John 8.44, as the father of lies. A slanderer spreads false, lie, uh, false rumors, lies, malicious gossip, or innuendos, and is capable of inflicting long-term and even irreparable damages in relationships. Um, Dr. Bill Malson explains how this was a prevalent problem, actually, in the Ephesian church, some of whom were characterized as going from house to house and learning how to be idlers and gossips. So take, for instance, chapter 5, verse 13, the section there about widows. Some of these women had a reputation for being gossips, it says, at the same time, they also learn to be idle as they go around from house to house, not merely idle, but also gossips. They're not just there to hang out with others. They're there to hang out with others and they spread false rumors, but also gossips and busybodies taking, talking about things not proper to mention. Verse 19 of chapter 5. And particularly, thinking about, um, talking about the leadership. Paul instructs Timothy, do not receive an accusation against an elder except on the basis of two or three witnesses. This is a serious matter. And we need to realize that a deacon's wife, 
because the deacon is the assistant to the elders, have access to confidential information about the people in the church and their needs that others in the congregation will not have. If she is a slanderer or a malicious talker and uses sensitive information to gossip or even cause conflict, she'll be a serious detriment to the elders and the deacons, as well as to the whole church. It is a shocking and terrible thought that Christians might be responsible for repeating a confidence or passing on malicious gossip. I think it is interesting that young, even young doctors, have you observed, observed how the world operates? So when a doctor graduates and he begins his practice, they take the Hippocratic Oath. Hippocratic Oath. And part of that oath is a pledge to never repeat anything that they have heard in the house of a patient or anything that they have heard about a patient, even if they heard it on the street. I think that is an interesting. In the work of helping others in the church with their needs, things might easily be heard and be repeated, and infinite damage might be done. So just as a deacon must demonstrate integrity of speech, and his wife must also demonstrate integrity of speech. She cannot be the kind of woman who freely speak evil of others. That leads us to our third qualification for a, a deacon's wife. She must be sober-minded, which our translation uh, puts it as temperate. She should be a temperate woman. We've seen this word before. It conveys the idea of someone that is sober-minded. It can be used figuratively for sobriety of mind or conduct or judgment. It's not just about uh, not being drunk with wine. You can expand that to being someone that is self-controlled, that is stable, that is level-headed and free from debilitating excesses, such as alcohol or different um, intoxicating substances. A deacon's wife must also be level-headed and balanced because of her strong influence on her husband. Furthermore, because husbands and wives often talk about such matters together, deacon's wives will sometimes know sensitive information about the people in the church and their problems. If a deacon's wife lacks control, self-control, and balanced mental judgment, she might adversely influence her husband's judgment and work. She will probably undermine his reputation in the congregation too. Then lastly, we read here that she must be faithful in all things. She should be faithful in all things. Paul's final and comprehensive qualifications for the deacon's wives is not charm. It's not a skilled work, but faithful in all things. The word faithful here means dependable, someone that is reliable, someone that is trustworthy. A deacon's wife is to, be, is to be a completely trustworthy person. We might expect Paul to say that the deacon's wives may be faithful to God or to their families, but that's not what he says. He says that she should be faithful in all things. That means that they ought to be trustworthy and reliable in every sphere of their life. Not perfect, but faithful with what the Lord has entrusted to them. In their committed commitment to Christ and his word, in their duty to their family, in their witness to the neighbors, in their relationships, in all responsibilities of church, family, every aspect of her life is to be marked by faithfulness, dependability, and reliability so that she is worthy of the respect, right? That's a woman of dignity, and she is a blessing to the whole church. Now, moving from the wife on verse 11 here, he says deacons um, must be husbands of only one wife, so we, it's really bringing about uh, the, the matter of the faithfulness of this man to that woman, managing his children well in their own household. So 
Lastly, we read here that the deacon should be a one-woman man, managing children, their household wells. Uh, well, Paul continues his discussion of the family life of would-be deacons by insisting, insisting that they're faithful in marriage and in their management of their abilities to be proven in regard to the children in particular and their households in general, just like it was required of elders. From the parallel passages, we learn that this means that the children ought to be submissive to their parents, not recklessly extravagant, but faithful. As I prayed earlier, the home is this microcosm of the church, and the qualities necessary for the, for the service of the church will be evident in the home. How Then the question comes, how someone actually can live and do all of this? First, the deacon will understand that his primary responsibility and human devotion should be toward his wife. He is, she is his first priority. She cherishes her. He encourages her as a faithful partner. And then and only then, he will talk about managing the children. Now, some may believe that the children's management has to do with control. I, I've seen children in previous churches that I attended that they were like all stiff and, and panic as if they were just being oppressed <laughs> by someone just with the stare of their parents. That's not at all what the Bible is saying here. It's not about controlling kids. I want to argue that the word to manage there has little to do with becoming, being a control freak or a disciplinarian. And it has more to do with being a servant. It carries the double nuance of leading or serving. And it is used both of elders and deacons. And all believers should be applying these things uh, to their own families. To do this task well, to manage well, or to do this good deed well, the parent deacon not only instructs and corrects his children with grace and patience, but he also trains them to be good stewards of their time and resources. He trains them to learn how to handle, to handle their emotions and how to exercise self-control through their words and actions. The godly deacon parent understands the need of offering grace and restoring their world, wayward child in loving discipline. He also understands that he's only, he's only a steward of his children. They've been trusted temporarily to him. He doesn't get to keep them. And instead of becoming a helicopter parent trying to control their every action, he will train them to make wise choices on their own. And finally, let them go to be men and women of God that will honor their parents. Now, one might be discouraged with the prospect of becoming a deacon. How in the world am I going to manage all these church responsibilities and manage my, my household, my wife, and my children, and all these events that I have? If you have children, you have many, many events to attend. How can one juggle all the responsibility responsibilities of the demanding nature of the diaconal work and being an exemplary husband and a good parent. The standards of the office is high and the duties of the office are difficult. Sometimes deacons might get tired of meeting the same needs over and over again. Over time, they might become discouraged in their service. They, so they, because of the difficulty of the office, the biblical qualifications for deacons, then end with an encouraging promise. Turn to verse 13. What does it say there? You know, I do not want you to be discouraged. <laughs> for those who have served well, as deacons, obtain for themselves a high standing and a great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. 
although much of the deacon's work is done in private, and it is noticed and commended by God. So this leads us to our next point there in our text, and it is the deacon's rewards, the deacon's reward. Having completed a list of personal qualities that are essential for a deacon, Paul concludes on a note of encouragement. And far from being a menial task, as someone might presume, providing daily service to the church has its rewards. In summary, Paul mentions two of them. Deacons are building a good reputation within the community, and they're also developing an even deeper confidence in their faith in God. All of this is a far cry from Paul's opponents. You will remember that we read about those who have shipwrecked their faith, right? But these men here not only have maintained their faith, they have increased and found a good standing in it. The linear aspect of the verb obtain indicates that Paul is describing an ongoing process. This is happening in the lives of the deacons as they serve. And it is not so much that by being a deacon, a person receives rewards. It is actually in doing the service that they are doing that one daily acquires a better standing before people and more confidence in one's personal faith. So as they serve, the church observes it, and they gain a better reputation. While in the later centuries, of the diaconate became a, uh, a stepping stone to eldership, there's no suggestion of this type of hierarchy in First Timothy. Some churches do that. Oh, I'm going to put you as a deacon, and then we'll see how you do, and then we'll put you as an elder. And it's really not considering all the qualifications, right? They're, they're similar. And I'm not saying that a, a deacon could not become an elder, but that shouldn't be a stepping stone. These men are honorable in their own tasks, and they do their tasks faithfully. Now, let me explain a little bit more what is this um, obtaining of a, um, for themselves a high standing. Title this a credible standing. The first promise reward is a good standing. The Greek word for standing there literally means a step. It means that it's like a step, uh, a step on a staircase or a base of a pedestal. Paul's whole purpose in verse 13 is to encourage the deacons in their work to enhance the value of the office. Just as in chapter 3, verse 1, Paul tried to encourage the overseers. It is a good thing that you pursue to be an overseer. It's a good desire. He's now trying to encourage the deacons to say, this is a good thing. You, can, you will obtain good standing. The standing Paul refers to has to do with reputation. It is a, a, a good standing, or better yet, an excellent or honorable standing. Paul is teaching that the hardworking deacon will acquire a good reputation, not a better step up in the hierarchy of church leadership. Because some people would look at this verse and think, oh, this is the next step for a deacon. He's going to become an elder. No, both are in good standing. Both hold to this good standing. But to gain... A better one is to, held, to be held in high regard by the believing community and to be recognized and appreciated by the church family. Second reward, it is a confident devotion. The first benefit of assisting well focus, uh, assisting the, the elders focuses on the deacon's public reputation before people. But the second reward is far more remarkable, far more important. The first reward it was people-focused. It's how they appear before people, how they appear in the eyes of the congregation. The second reward is Christ-focused. It refers to a deeper personal faith in Christ and a closer relationship with their Lord. Paul promises that those who serve well as deacons will gain a great confidence in their faith that is in Christ Jesus. It is an intriguing fact that the challenging work of assisting the elders with the care of God's church significantly enhances their faith, their faith relationship in Christ. 
what a powerful encouragement. I think about those that really spend most, much of their time working here and serving us. That we will have everything set up for church when it starts on Sunday. More than just what they're doing, they are acquiring a better relationship with the Lord. This confidence described here is a common term that Paul uses, and it means an openness, a clarity of speech. It literally means saying what one really means. It means publicly. In that what one is saying is open to all, or a courage, a boldness of speech. As such, it is often associated with someone standing before a high rank or before God. The meaning here is that deacons who serve well will be bold in their faith and have courage in expressing what they believe. This boldness could be a confidence before God, but because this context here, it refers to one's relationship with the outside world, it describes the deacon's boldness in public. I think 2 Corinthians 3, 12 illustrates this. It's the same word there that Paul uses. We can turn there. 2 Corinthians 3, verse 12. Paul is obviously referring to um, his confidence in praying. He says, therefore, having such a hope, we use great boldness in our speech. Right? So it is that word boldness or confidence that a deacon has. As a commentator says, a deacon's confidence is not because he's a good deacon, but because a good deacon, as a good deacon, he knows well the meaning of his faith in Jesus Christ. The faith here refers to the deacon's individual faith, and as Paul continues, is rooted in Christ Jesus. In other words, the confidence that deacons build in their process, of their, in the process of their service, the church is the strengthening of their personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And consequently, the proclamation of their faith becomes stronger and bolder. I'm walking with the Lord. I know more about him. I am more fearless as I share the gospel with others. I am more um, confident as I teach others as well, for those who teach. Now that we have discussed the call and the qualifications of leaders in the church, I have a question, and that is, what does leave all of us? What about the rest of the church? What about all the unofficial servants? Everybody that serves in some capacity in the church. Well, I'm glad that you asked, and I know that you would ask this in the fellowship groups. So I, I brought here three points of application. And the first one is, all are empowered and expected to serve in the church. It might be that you're not, you don't have a title of a deacon. But what I'm trying to argue here is when you consider the work of the deacons, we must not forget that the entire congregation is to be a living, functioning body with each other, gifted by God and responsible for the life and work of the church. Uh, in Ephesians 4.12, talks about the overseer's role of equipping the saints to do what? The work of ministry. So who does the work of ministry? The elders? The overseers? The saints. Everyone does the work of ministry. We cannot separate Paul's doctrine of the elders and deacons from the doctrine of the church as the living body of Christ. Christian community is truly a community of one anothering. In the body of Christ, every individual member of the body is responsible to work together with the other members to build up the body of Christ. Each member is responsible for loving and encouraging and exhorting and serving and admonishing and teaching and building up, caring for, praying for, bearing the burdens of one another. This is not just the elders. That's not just the deacons. 
This means that every member of the local church has a role to play if the church is to be healthy, a well-functioning body. Strzok explains that this doctrine is sometimes referred to that every ministry, every member ministry of the body of Christ. It is an exciting and relevant Christian doctrine that we must always keep in mind when addressing Paul's concept of deacons and assistants or assistants to the elders. As one writer so uh, put this so well, he says, the functioning of the body requires and is equally dependent on those who are not leaders. The church operates not just with the leadership, but with every piece of the body working together. Every follower of Christ is a servant, is a diakonos. You can't say, uh, I, I've, you know, I'm really not good at doing anything. I'm not responsible for this. Well, the elders will take care of it. Well, the deacons will do this. I'm nobody special. I'm just a Christian. You know, I was saved. I come to church. I attend the service. I'm done. I have no particular obligation in the church. Really? Really? You are obliged to serve as a way of life. Not to the church. You're serving the church because you're serving the Lord. If you call yourself a disciple of Christ, you are a servant. Turn to John chapter 12. If you think that you can be a Christian and do nothing for Christ, you're deceiving yourself. John chapter 12 says, verse 25, 26, he who loves his life loses it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it to eternal life. It's talking about the cost of discipleship. You want to be a disciple of Christ? Deny yourself. That's what he's saying there. And then he says, if anyone serves me, same, word, same root there for diakonos, serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. So a disciple of Christ is someone that decided to follow him and to serve him. This way, deacons do not do everything in a church. As a disciple of Christ, it is your identity to be a servant, to be a servant of Christ, to be a servant to his people. Uh, that's where the elders and the deacons come in, in this task, is to equip the saints, to help them, to do just that as a disciple of Christ, you're putting to work what you have been gifted to do. The elders and even deacons are to recruit and mobilize their fellow members in the body to help to accomplish the many tasks required of a growing, healthy church body. As the scripture says that the whole body only functions, Ephesians 4.16, when according to the proper working of each, each individual part. If each individual part is working, he says, it causes the growth of the whole body for the building up of itself in love. Do you want to see a healthy church? Do you want to see a church that is growing? You see the, each individual member doing their part. Second application there for you. Some, we know that all are required and all um, are expected to serve as disciples of Christ, but some have been particularly gifted to serve the Lord. So we understand that the term diaconia and service can be used in a general sense. Obviously, the deacon is a very specific office. It can also be used a bit more specifically to refer to those in the exercise of their spiritual gifts 
their place in the faithful service, assisting and helping others in common areas of responsibility. Some might be serving in many capacities within the church, such as discipling others or teaching or using their musical talents to facilitate worship and so forth. Some who are qualified to serve receive the title and position of an office of a deacon. But instead of generating discontent for not being recognized or leading to jealousy within the body, that should take us to humble examination. I want to take you to Romans chapter 12, verse 3. Paul here is saying that in the church, in the body of Christ, where we have all these different people, he's giving instructions to them about the gifts that the Lord has given them. But he starts with verse 3. For though the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think more highly of yourself or of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment, as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. Because one might think, oh, I'm more important. I hold this title. That's not what Paul is getting at here. He's saying, you recognize that whatever you have, whatever giftedness you have, whatever title you have, do not think highly of yourself. Whatever you have was allotted to each one a measure of faith. And that's given by the Lord. He's the one that enables and and equips. And he continues, for just as we have many members in one body and all the members do not have the same function, so we who are many are one in one body in Christ and individually members of one another. So in the body of Christ, every piece is working together for for building itself up in love. We shouldn't think that we're more important than the other. And even in Corinthians, Paul says, you know, the, the foot can't say to the, to the eye, I'm, more, I'm better than you. The eye say to the foot, I'm better than you. We all are individually important to the body of Christ. See, since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, each of us is to exercise them accordingly. If prophecy, according to the proportion of his faith. If service, if service in his serving. Guess what? They're serving. The word there, diakona. But he who teaches in his teaching, and he who exhorts in his exhortation, he who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence, and he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. So everybody is in the service of Christ. Now there are some, however, they're especially gifted to function in that way. It doesn't mean that the rest of us don't do it, right? We read here that it talks about teaching. Is only those, their pastors, they're able to teach? No. We have people that are able to teach that don't hold the office. Are there only those, they're, um, they're rich? They're able to give? No, that is not at all the case. It doesn't mean that the rest of us don't do the other tasks they're entrusted to us. It just means that they do it in a unique sense. They serve a special way of life energized by the Spirit of God. In other words, all of us are serving, but some of us are uniquely gifted to serve in some capacity. Now, I want to encourage you who is already serving the Lord, who you are already serving the Lord and employing your gifts to seek some excellence as you do these things. Turn to 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter 4, verse 8 and 11. Know that we're all required to serve. Some are gifted to serve. And if you are gifted... How can you grow more in that ability? First Peter chapter 4, verse 8, he says, Above all, keep fervent your love for one another. That's the motivation. Because love covers the multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without complaint. 
as each one has received what? A special gift. Employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Whoever speaks is to do so as one is speaking the utterances of God. Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which the Lord supplies. Serving God is hard at times. You need his strength to do it. So that in all things, God might be glorified through Jesus Christ. Because you don't get to to say at the end, see how much I have accomplished? Oh, look at all the things that I've done at the church. You only did it because the Lord has gifted you, enabled you, and you don't take any glory for it. God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion in forever and ever. Amen. And then lastly, why is it so important that we all serve? One last point of application here is that the diaconate is the church office most closely resembles to the servanthood of Jesus Christ. Mark chapter 10, verse 43 to 45 Mark 10, 43 and 45. You know why the mark of a disciple of Christ is to be a servant? Because Christ was a servant. Mark chapter 10, verse 43 and 45 through 45 says... He was calling them to himself. Jesus said to them, You know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them? You want to see what leadership looks like in the world? Are those there over there on the top? And their great men exercise authority over them, but this is not supposed to be the way among you. Whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be the slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Deacons serve Jesus because he first served them. We, as disciples of Christ as well, we serve God because he first served us by sacrificing himself, by giving his life. As um, T.F. Torrance has written, he says, it is only in in this, Jesus, that we learn what diaconia or service really is. The loving service in mercy that looks for no reward beyond the knowledge that We do what is commended of us and looks for no thanks from those to whom mercy is extended. But it's only because this Jesus has made our case his very own, sharing our existence in servitude and sharing with us his own life of love that we may and can engage in this kind of service in him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, We praise you that you have stooped down from your glory where you were served by the angels and you came down to insignificant, sinful, rebellious man to give your life as a ransom, as a rescue in their favor, as a sacrifice on their behalf. And you're so pleased not only to save us but to give us a a, a goal in life, a mission, to make disciples, to employ the gifts that you have given us to serve your body. I do pray, Lord, that you would bring conviction to your people, that there is no place for complacency in the body of Christ, that we are all required to serve because we have been rescued by a Savior who who served us. May we now employ the gifts that you have given us to serve one another. Lord, may we do that with humility, not waiting for being recognized by others, but do that with a heart 
of gratitude who is pleased not to be recognized by others, but to trust that our reward comes from you. I do pray for our leadership as well, that you would hold them fast in your arms, that you will keep them faithful, protect their families, protect their marriages, protect their children from the attacks of the enemy, that we know they're so strong for those who are up front here. Lord, we love you and praise you for giving yourself for us. And I pray, Lord, that we would have the same desire, not to be served, but to serve others as you have done to us. In the precious name of your Son, amen.